It's already the 20th episode of The Plunge, and we're still dredging up more and more of the clogs and confusions in our convoluted cultural discourse. We'll check in with Betsy DeVos, the widely hated education secretary, fresh off an awful TV interview. Marco Rubio tried to redeem himself with the teens after his disastrous CNN Town Hall performance by appearing on YouTube celebrity Jake Paul's vlog. Chuck Todd refused to trade jabs with President Trump. And the New Yorker declared Robert Mueller a style icon in far too many words. For our main story, we're going to discuss the recent BuzzFeed investigation into the NYPD's police discipline records. Then we will lay out the highly pragmatic case for defunding, disarming, and eventually abolishing the police. In the pop culture corner, we're talking about best picture winner, The Shape of Water, 20 years of The Big Lebowski, and the upcoming Netflix documentary on the noted glutton for punishment, Rachel Dolezal. Dan will wrap us up with a big-time radio producer man's story about what to do when you get a phone call from a white supremacist. Sit back. It's time to plunge. That's right, folks. Uh, Sam Wagstaff, Dan Spaventa. We bring you the plunge. Let's listen to Betsy DeVos on 60 Minutes. Have you seen the really bad schools? Maybe try to figure out what what they're doing. I have not. I have not. I have not intentionally visited schools that are underperforming. Maybe you should. Uh, maybe I should. Why have you become? People say the most hated cabinet secretary. I'm not so sure how exactly that happened, but I think there are a lot of really powerful forces allied against change. Does it hurt? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Again, I think think, um, I'm more misunderstood than anything. Well, that was a little embarrassing, Sam, but perhaps more embarrassing... You know, Democrats, you know, were dunking on her all, all day Monday over that clip. And the reality of what DeVos was talking about was, A, that rewarding higher-performing schools with more resources compels low-performing schools to improve themselves, and B, that school choice programs should be expanded despite mixed or poor results in states such as Michigan. These are centrist Democrat policies. They totally are. It's this stupid fucking bootstraps myth that has pervaded everything. The idea that in order to have any kind of normal life, you need to literally do the impossible and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which if you even just investigate that phrase means absolutely nothing. And school choice... What does that really mean, Sam? It means, like, charter schools. It means spreading the resources out. And generally, who does that impact negatively? It impacts people with the least agency. It impacts poor people who don't want to have to choose between, oh, it's so great, I went on the fucking internet, and I can choose between this really clean, nice school and the one with asbestos falling out, and then I have the third one where it's in a a rough neighborhood and they don't have any textbooks. Like, which one am I going to choose? I mean... 
I don't understand this fucking world where you have to have an app for everything and have choices. It's school. It should just be good education that everyone gets. And, for example, Obama even had this, it's called the Race to the Top program. <gasps> they called it a competition for over $4 billion in grants that would ease limits on charter schools and tie teacher pay to student achievement, which that's has that not been, like, debunked at this point that tying those together makes for... I mean, even just the idea that grades matter, I think, is something that you grow up to realize is, you know, pretty false, especially at the uh, middle school and elementary school But I, I really age. hate the fucking implication that uh, if if schools wanted to do better, they just would. As opposed to the idea, which, which makes a lot more sense if you think about it for 10 seconds, that how students perform in school has a lot to do with structural issues that are not within their fucking realm to control, right? Does that seem a little more? Yeah, definitely. Either way, I mean, we can wrap this up with, I fucking found this hilarious. I want to draw attention to the fact that the Washington Post has a humor section, which is literally called the compost. And there's- Oh no, is it like, is it like proto Borowitz? It makes Borowitz look kind of funny. At least his are short. Um, Alexander Petrie wrote, she's the main writer for this. I think it's her column. And she wrote this stupid article that was imagining the dialogue between Betsy DeVos and was making fun. Like you said earlier, liberals were dunking on her because they're like, she doesn't know what a school is. She's never been to a school. Instead of thinking about why she might be saying things like that, I think we're showing exactly why she would say something like that. Not to mention, sorry to interject, but like, this is not us defending Betsy DeVos. We hate this woman. Yeah, but you can't dunk on her if you have the same policies. We want to target these Democrats who are kind of like using that to pat themselves on the back when in reality they really support the same ideas. But Betsy DeVos herself, I mean, can we just say like two words about her? Her husband is Eric Prince. She's just like this billionaire heiress to the, what, the Amway fortune. And she is ideologically opposed to public school, which is something that she probably has never come in contact with, which is why she's so obsessed with these charter schools. She wishes that she's one of these ideologues that thinks the free market makes everything better. Or, I mean, she might not honestly believe that. She might just be looking to get rich. I think she knows that she stands to be profit or people like her stand to profit more from a situation in which people have to, like, choose which school they pay to send their kids to. But... I, I don't know. She's she's a monster. I think she's one of the worst people of the administration. Oh, Eric Prince is actually Betsy DeVos's brother. Brother, sorry. Fuck, I forgot. Either way. But it was so, uh, that humor column in the WAPO, what what's it getting at? <laughs> it's get the the point of that article is that what it thinks is funny about that Betsy DeVos interview on 60 minutes that you know her struggling for answers and with that like fucking saccharine smile and everything. It, it, it uses a real quote, which is when she says, I have not intentionally visited schools that are underperforming. To, the next one is a fake, it, it's, it goes into the fictionalized dialogue, and it says the interviewer is like, have you seen a school? Betsy DeVos in this fictionalized dialogue says, a school? I have. Well, I hesitate to say a school. We of course know a school is not a building, nor is it a bus. Unless it's a bus, I'm pretty sure it's not a bus. Like, it just goes on like that. Like, oh, lol, Betsy DeVos is stupid. And de- Instead of Betsy DeVos is fucking evil, like which I think is a better line to run with. Either way, we, we can't dwell on the WAPO's humor section. I literally just found out it exists. So hopefully it's not on any of our listeners' radar, but 
I definitely wanted to give a shout out to two of the past socialist holidays. We had Ghanaian Independence Day, which I consider a bit of a socialist holiday because Ghana won its independence from the British Empire under Kwame Nkrumah, who is like a classically schooled Marxist-Leninist. And he just has some beautiful words about African unity that I attached. So yeah, I think that I wanted to read from one of his speeches. The greatest contribution that Africa can make to the peace of the world is to avoid all the dangers inherent in disunity by creating a political union, which will also by its success stand as an example to a divided world. A union of African states will project more effectively the African personality. It will command respect from a world that has regard only for size and influence. The scant attention paid to the African opposition to the French atomic tests in the Sahara and the ignominious spectacle of the UN and the Congo quibbling about constitutional niceties while the Republic was tottering into anarchy are evidence of the callous disregard of African independence by the great powers. We have to prove that greatness is not to be measured in stockpiles of atom bombs. I believe strongly and sincerely that that with the deep-rooted wisdom and dignity, the innate respect for human lives, the intense humanity that is our heritage, the African race, united under one federal government, will emerge not just as another world block to flaunt its wealth and strength, but as a great power whose greatness is indestructible because it is built not on fear, envy, and suspicion, nor one at the expense of others, but founded on hope, trust, friendship, and directed to the good of all mankind." The emergence of such a mighty stabilizing force in this strife-worn world should be regarded not as a shadowy dream of a visionary, but as a practical proposition which the peoples of Africa can and should translate into reality. There is a tide in the affairs of every people when the moment strikes for political action. Such was the moment in the history of the United States of America when the Founding Fathers saw beyond the petty... Nah, yada, 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 that's not the best part there because we don't like the Founding Fathers very much. Either way, this is our chance. We must act now. Tomorrow may be too late and the opportunity will have passed and with it the hope of free Africa's survival. You know, unfortunately, the U.S. government, specifically the CIA, organized a coup against him in 1966 and exiled him. But in general, I think we have some other guys who are following in his footsteps. We've got Julius Malema, who's the leader and founder of the Economic Freedom Fighters in South Africa, who recently achieved like a massive victory through an overwhelming majority vote in parliament to amend South Africa's constitution to allow land expropriation without compensation from white landowners. Uh, Julius Malema is the real deal. He says it like he means it, and I think we should. everyone should follow him. You might find that I have to do the plunge remotely from like South Africa when I quit capitalism and go become a true Marxist revolutionary. Speaking of revolutionaries, Michael Flynn Jr. We've discussed on this show how he tried and failed to kidnap a Turkish cleric for a large bounty. And now he's alerted me to the news on Twitter. Michael Flynn, the retired Army general and ex-Trump Nationals security advisor who pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents about his Russia contacts, has put his Virginia home for sale to pay his legal fees. And then Michael Flynn Jr. attached that and said, To all supporters of the Flynn family, compared to the suffering of many others in the world go through, we'll certainly get through this. Not easy by any means. Houses are material. Having a strong family is all we need. (laughs) I love this heartwarming shit from a guy who is excessively proud of his father's career murdering people. 
And I even saw a tweet from him <laughs> making fun of this Hollywood Reporter cover with the Silicon Valley cast oh. and the title Triumph of the Beta Male. <laughs> and then Flynn Jr. shared the hashtag Proud Alpha Male. <laughs> and he's, he's a fail son if there ever was one. And I think that fucking picture is so funny to me because the alt-right lost their shit but for context the picture is of the characters in silicon valley and the, ca- the characters in silicon valley are like the all the fucking right-wing dream they're they quit working for the, a large employer to have autonomy form their own business and they do it all on the you know the back of their incredible engineering talent like they are basically like a fuck one step away from like an atlas shrugged style parable but instead these fucking alt writers are like so just incensed by the idea that you don't have to be a complete fucking gung-ho asshole to be masculine that they miss all of that (laughs) we wish the flynn family the best and sam was even able to find the listing on google maps and we will include that information in the show notes if any of our fans are wealthy enough to purchase the flynn home i mean i thought it was so funny because i was reading about this on my trusted news source of course fox news and fox news is where i got the listing which literally lists his address which it were i don't think he lives there anymore i think he he has retreated to Rhode Island or wherever hellhole he's from, but his address is 411 North Pitt Street, Alexandria, Virginia. It's right in Old Town, Alexandria, near the water. It's a beautiful place. Stroll down there, egg the house. I don't know, do whatever you want. It's not. It's it's not far from like downtown DC at all. You could take the metro out there. <laughs> Let's move on to a moment from Bernie Sanders. This was a big one. He declined to endorse Senator Dianne Feinstein. Yeah. A centrist Democrat who's been uh, how many terms? Uh, quite a few, right? Yeah, she's been she's been what senator for so fucking long. He wants to stay out of the California race. It's up to the people of California to decide. And he said he is going to weigh in on other races as needed, but he doesn't feel like he had to stick his neck out for Diane Feinstein who backed Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential race, and she pushed Sanders to drop out in May of 2016. She, it's just funny. It's, you know, someone who totally wasn't on his side, and now she expects his support. Her rival is this guy, Kevin DeLeon. He's has a more bona fide claim to the progressive handle and most specifically diane feinstein does not have a claim to that handle she is a multi-millionaire she who not that that on its own precludes you but she's also voted in favor of the patriot act and warrantless surveillance for like you know over a decade now and i don't think that she's any will be missing anything when we lose her hopefully yeah, like, break up these legacy people. It's, you know, I'm not going to call her a dinosaur because maybe that's a little ageist and also a little hypocritical considering Bernie <laughs> is, like, ancient. <laughs> but <laughs> there is not enough pterodactyl meat to go around for the raptors and the non-Tyrannosaurus Rex di- con- meat-eating carnivores. There's going to be a revolution. If not, we will be all crushed by the asteroid. 
Do you know how much tea was wasted at the Boston Tea Party? It was worth it. I was there. Either way, although we have been ragging on our girl Diane Feinstein, another socialist holiday that passed recently was the International Women's Day, which is indeed a socialist holiday. It was established by the Second International Socialist Women's Conference uh, held on August 26th and 27th in 1910 in Copenhagen. Don't at me with this fucking bourgeois feminist bullshit. By bourgeois feminist bullshit, what am I talking about? I'm talking about all the corporations that did International Women's Day garbage. McDonald's turning the M upside down. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there were way worse. There was a female Pringles logo. There was a Jane Walker instead of Johnny Walker for the shitty scotch. Then Claudia Sanders instead of Colonel Sanders for KFC. (laughs) Because clearly the abhorrent thing about Colonel Sanders is not that he's like obviously a slave owner. The problem is that he is (laughs) like a man. But... Either way, the most heinous thing I saw on International Women's Day was the new Barbies, like the Role Models series, and I think most of them are pretty fine. I'm not going to say that, like, little kids shouldn't be able to have Barbies, uh, Barbies that are, you know, scientists and chefs and all the wide range of cool occupations that women hold, but the worst one was this fucking Frida Kahlo Barbie. Dan, do you know anything about Frida Kahlo? She had pretty far left uh, ideas, right? Yeah, she's a Mexican artist and writer. She was married to Diego Rivera, and she was definitely, like you said, far left. She was a bisexual communist. I attached the image of a painting that she did called My Dress Hangs There, which was inspired when she was in New York with Diego Rivera, who was painting murals in Rockefeller Center and really enjoying the fame in America. And she felt very left out. She had a a crippling bus accident and suffered from polio when she was younger. So she was heavy into like alcohol and drugs. And this factors in because... The reason we have this preposterous Frida Kahlo Barbie is because her niece somehow in 2005 was able to rally investors to purchase the rights to Frida Kahlo's name and likeness and has turned it into an upscale brand. Yikes. <laughs> Isn't that, that's capital. Dan, do you think that you would be a good upscale brand? Yes, I have equally as iconic a visage as Frida, so why not? So either way, that's what allowed Mattel to make this preposterous doll. I think it's a very bad, bad taste to have it. It doesn't even have the unibrow, which is what she's so known for in terms of her likeness. So if you're going to market her likeness, at least do a fucking good job at it. Frida Kahlo Don't just sexualize her for the modern day. Yeah, exactly. And I, I did a little more daily into the Frida Kahlo Corporation, which also markets a highly tasteless fucking Frida Kahlo tequila, which does not take like i said earlier she did she turned to alcohol and drugs to recover from like the pain of her crippling injuries from polio and the major bus accident (laughs) all around extremely tasteless don't buy any marketed frida kahlo shit come on why don't we check in with our social media account sam we have a twitter for this show and we use it to highlight some of the best and brightest yeah, I went after Kurt Reichenwald a lot. He claimed that he had blocked all of the Russian bots that, like, pester him on Twitter, I guess. He has not but blocked us. He has not blocked us, and I reminded him that we are the only podcast staffed, staffed entirely by Russian bots. And another person who's on 
Twitter seemingly exclusively is our boy Prison Planet Paul. Dan, give the listeners a little information about the Prison Planet guy. Well, let's play a clip of his voice so people can get a sense of this because I feel like that's one of the funniest parts. Is it about soy that turns men into such spineless wimps? I mean, this guy is such a total It's stunning. Soybeans contain high amounts of phytoestrogens, organic compounds that mimic the female hormone estrogen in the human body. This reduces testosterone and lowers male sperm count. Men who eat half a serving of soy a day have 34 million fewer sperm per millimeter than those who don't. So he's an InfoWars guy, British... What can you say? He's a alright conspiracy theorist guy. Very boring, very bland, fascistic takes on the day's news. Uh, yeah. He's a YouTuber. Well, he had an amazing thread that I think, or, or it was a video that he posted, uh, which I did not watch because I'm not an idiot. But this thing. Oh, let's play some. Let's play some. Let's play some audio from that. No. Oh. How many stories have you heard or personally experienced of people being ostracized and disowned by their own friends and family members for their political opinions? Listen to what this young mother told me. I had to get a restraining order against my parents when I became a conservative Christian. At the time I was pregnant and my parents were threatening violence and to take custody of my unborn child. Ashton Whitty, since coming out conservative, I've been exiled by my own family. Watched my dreams of acting be destroyed, spent several nights homeless, and have found myself more anxious and depressed than ever. <laughs> okay, this is like a, a trope that we've noticed. I think we, we have another one of these that we're going to do in terrible takes, but these conservatives with like very heinous, white supremacist, asshole world beliefs who are surprised that their family members like no longer want to deal with them do you have any family members dan that you've like had to disown for politics no it hasn't gotten to that level even the ones i've trolled on the internet we had a great time at a family reunion the other week so <laughs> yeah i mean i don't really have so much of this and i mean my family's all pretty much like liberal jews except for some some of the gentiles but I, I don't think it ever really comes to these terms, but I thought it was so funny seeing all the people who replied to the thread saying that, like, giving their specific families disowning stories. And the <laughs> one person said, like, oh, my family members are rushing to see Wrinkle in Time, so it's guaranteed to suck. Like, he's like, no, I totally didn't want to go see a movie with this my family. This Disney movie is cultural Marxism. <laughs> That's like Jordan Peterson-esque. You're very good, little Peterson there. There was one person, this is coming from Fat Bastard. He's saying, I was disowned by my family over this long before it was cool. Is he Austin Powers referencing? He's also very lonely. His family has abandoned him for years because his politics are so reprehensible. Well, maybe stop quoting Austin Powers and they'll want you back. Yeah, clearly these people have other things going on, which is why their family doesn't want to talk to them. One person said that they lost their best friend for tw of over 20 years after the election. Like, <laughs> bro, you guys weren't, like, I, my best friend is a Marine. Like we, like, we don't agree on everything. We're still friends. Like, goddamn. You guys clearly weren't friends to begin with. The idea that your family would disown you over politics is so funny to me. But honestly, if a family member of mine was, like, a men's rights activists or like a real alt-right freak like i would want nothing to fucking do with them so i'm not saying it's like we're above that sort of thing but I, we're just fortunate enough that our families aren't 
that far right. Yeah. There were some other good ones on here. There was one person who said that she, like, was forced to retire her successful business because no one wanted to do business with her because their politics were bad. There was one person who said that he and his wife need counseling. And he was, he was like, one person even told us we needed counseling, lol. It's like, <laughs> I think he thinks that he might have been a little shaken, more shaken by that comment than he's letting on in this tweet. But there was one that I have to close out with it's not even related this guy just said i found that most people respect me more when they see me in person my soy friends would blast me on facebook but guess who's sucking up to the big dog when he comes around jesus and this guy's uh twitter photo is just the eye of sauron (laughs) oh my god utterly utterly humiliated recently marco rubio is attempting to mount what i think he intended to be (laughs) a major comeback by appearing on the jake paul program yes let's play a clip of that i think the only thing i can do to help in this situation is go ground floor talk to a bunch of people that were in in the shooting outside of the shooting teachers of the school the the parkland county commissioner and figure out what needs to be done and give that message to as many people as i possibly can hello hey what's up man i think like a lot of people think passing laws is super easy can you explain some of like the struggles around uh, around the passing laws so what I'm trying to do, or try to do, is kind of figure out, all right, what are the things we agree on? And let's do those things first. You know, it makes sense. We agree on these eight things. Let's do these eight things. And then there's some things we may not agree on. We can, phase two will be to go work on some of those things. But let's get the things we agree on out of the way. Why, why wait to do the things that we agree on? You know, especially because it's so hard. So, Ashley Feinberg, I think, summed it up really well. After getting humiliated by teens on national TV... Marco Rubio is attempting to regain his dignity by speaking to Jake Paul on such topics as a lot of people think passing laws is super easy. So what do you think this is? Is this a how do you do fellow kids moment where or to 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 to, uh, dissect how to prevent school shootings, which doesn't involve any gun control? Um, Can I say, Sam, do you want to hear his five point plan? Yeah, yeah, I do. One. Make school windows bulletproof. (laughs) Put metal all over the school. (laughs) Everyone wears body armor. Nobody comes to school without a full tactical gear. You have to come dressed like fucking Mad Max. (laughs) Your mom's minivan has to have like a guy chained to it shredding an electric guitar with like flames coming out. (laughs) Two, more school resource officers. Oh, genius. I'm sure no one's thought of that. The next one is hold social media responsible, which he describes as, I believe these big social media companies should also have a moral responsibility. I know on Instagram, if a girl posts a picture with her nipples out, it automatically gets flagged and removed from Instagram. So why can't we have that same technology with a kid taking a selfie with a handgun? (laughs) Free the nip, bro. Yeah. More titties. Well, I think his implication there is you can somehow flag and remove images from Instagram of of children with guns. 
I don't know what it would be. Flag all the memes I see on Instagram that say, like, school shootings are cool, I guess. I don't really see many of those. Though. Oh, my God. The fourth one is great. So I'm just going to read. Rather than just telling you what it is, I'm going to read the quote. There are, like, these bulletproof shields that can fit into laptop pouches of backpacks. If I was a student again back in 2012, I wouldn't have gone to school another day without one of those in my backpack. Uh, bulletproof shields for your child. This is what happens when you only interact with the world through like video games or the internet. You think everything's just like a power up. Like, bro, you just got to get the mods, dog. Uh, then you don't get killed by like a school shooter, like 13 of your classmates, bro. Apparently Jake Paul has a tattoo of an assault rifle on his thigh. I would be surprised if he didn't. I was like, kind of hoping that this video was going to be like Marco Rubio goes to the suicide forest or something. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm obsessed with the uh, the suicide forest video. I know it's, you know, this is problematic and everything, but I was laughing my fucking ass off. That was Logan Paul. That was the other Paul. I know that was Logan Paul, but they're the same. They like, they're two years apart and they're basically identical. It's very hard to tell them apart. Effectively to us, who fucking cares? Um, let's talk about Antifa because Richard Spencer is now saying he's going to rethink his college tour, which I don't know how to say, have you seen pictures from his recent stops at colleges? Like there would be like 10 fucking old guys there. It's so depressing. Population of an entire basement at one of those stupid events. And Richard Spencer is a alt-right Nazi figure, has had large amounts of Antifa direct action protests at his rallies, and now he's saying this. Long story short, this is on his Twitter, the college tour idea was to engage with students and community, not have pitched battles. Antifa has escalated. They are nasty. You're a Nazi! And the police aren't policing them properly. We have to recalibrate and find a model that works. Well, congrats, Antifa. But I put this into terrible takes because I saw, I think this got the, the most widely shared article I saw about this was one in the Washington Post, which is never a good sign. And this article, which we will attach, is the terrible take. The title, so I have a problem with this idea that Antifa truly shut down Richard Spencer. Like you said, there are only ever like 11 fucking people at these stupid things anyway. And if you compare it to, like, the Milo Yiannopoulos case, Antifa went after him at least as much. And he still he had way more people coming to his events. And he didn't quit. He was shut down. He said that stuff excusing his, like, you know, problematic relationship with an older man in the past. And it wound up he, – he lost his Simon & Schuster book deal. And I think he lost a job at Breitbart. He just was – he fell out of favor from above – and I think with Richard Spencer, what he's doing is he's framing his unpopularity and his decision to give up his college tour, which no one wanted to go to, as like his free speech being shut down by Antifa. And I think that this Washington Post headline, Antifa is winning. Richard Spencer thinks his college, thinks his college tour after violent protests. Well, I think like, it's it quote, exactly, I think it's quoting him because it does have like it is quoting what he's saying. But if you go f it, into it, it's just. It focuses a lot on the on the fact that Antifa like was so like opposed to him as the reason he's off. But I really just think it's because no one was coming to this shit. And maybe I'm sure Antifa had played a hand in that. But I don't like this narrative that like 
free speech has died. But you can't say it had nothing to do with it, because remember, he got punched in the face right after the inauguration, or was that... No, and I... Th- the, the, and there was just... No, I think that's heroic. I think that's great. That's not that's and, not what and, I'm and, getting and at. He, and he has acknowledged that they've made his life very hard, and he's afraid to go outside. Right, but he, in general, he's just trying to save face with this, like, with, with this... Lo- he's, he's histrionic. He's a showman. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with that, yeah, I think we're in agreement. Like, Antifa definitely played a large role in this, and I think it's awesome. But I don't want to hand liberals the win of, like, oh, free speech died today. And I'm sure there are going to be people who are willing to die on that hill for to make that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, and especially the ultimate takeaway is he's not really very popular. I think that's a good thing. It's a sign of the fact that I think in gen- outside of the court of – fucking media journalists opinion we can conclude that it's... violence against nazis is great yeah i'm down with it as to take it from two jews we're we're real in favor of that i'm waiting for someone to make that movie that has like the soviet union violently liberating concentration camps in eastern europe kind of like in the movie. style of inglorious bastards but like that actually happened it's real at the end of world war ii like the allies went across western europe but russia and its allies just went across all of eastern europe which the nazis had taken over so they basically just liberated that whole area and of course they wound up being anti-semitic and terrible once they took over i'm not excusing the soviet union here but there is this point in time that you never see depicted in movies where soviets were liberating jews from the camps it's a thing well i got a good kick out of this moment when Trump called Chuck Todd, the Meet the Press host, a sleeping son of a bitch at a rally, Chuck Todd, the ultimate cuck Todd, said, I bring my kids up to respect the office of the presidency and the president. I don't allow them to say anything negative ever about the president. Why? Because he's not a fucking human. I hate this term, and Chuck Todd has worn it, I feel, since I was aware of him at NBC and MSNBC, that he's like a politics junkie. And I feel like when you're a politics junkie, you have these ridiculous West Wing-ish ideas about what this all is. Yeah, they think it's like... uh jousting or some kind of like fencing something where you get points for style or this like beautiful like ballet and chess match you think you get points for civility and they think it's just debate club is what it is i think they think that debate club extends into adulthood and that's what politics is but politics is as we've talked about on the show the struggle of who gets what and when Now, I am a fan of The New Yorker for long-form writing, and some of the fiction is great, but good God, this story they put out. (laughs) Nauseating. Robert Mueller, style icon. Robert Mueller, the lead prosecutor of the Russia investigation. Yes, because everyone knows no one defines style like dudes who have been lawyers for the government for, like, decades. So I pulled a quote from this. It says... Within the community of men passionate about preppy clothing, there's a lively conversation around Mueller's preference for starch in his Oxford cloth shirt, a choice evident in the unusual curvature of the roll of his collar, which bulges where you'd expect it to arch gently. It takes a certain sort of prep to starch his Oxford cloth. There is a school of thought that holds that this material looks appealing when wrinkled increased, and Mueller pointedly does not attend it. In his (laughs) emphasis on telegraphing rectangles, 
ineptitude, it is tempting to see the influence of Mueller's tenure in the Marines, the military influence on Mueller's dress sense. God, sometimes the New Yorker's writing is just so fucking annoying. Nauseating. Like the style. I mean, I guess in this case, you are describing something that's artistic, but you're really, I think they're really trying to word, he wears a fucking white shirt with a suit every fucking day of his life for like the past what however long he's been in government it's, it's not exciting guys it's so sad that this is like supposed to they really do read positive qualities from him i'm going to continue this is a costume for an allegory on the one hand you have trump's one-time campaign chairman paul manafort who according to mueller's indictment spent more than 1.3 million dollars on clothes in the course of about six years including peak lapel suits of baronial slickness on the other hand you have a government lawyer with an ideally understated public image. An understatement is a statement nonetheless, and Mueller's sartorial rhetoric encodes heroic values. He is armored in the good, clean, honest look of an extremely civil servant, unaffected and therefore inimitable. The person who dresses the most boringly, in the most boring way, is the best person that you know. Normcore is the uniform of a god. What did the two dope queens call Stephen Colbert? What was it? The white zaddy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking here. Mueller is a white zaddy. <laughs> no, actually, the, the specific thing I thought of with this Stephen Mueller article was like Mueller as like the the phantom thread, <laughs> like Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> My word. The f- We have to redo the whole dress because I threw up on it. (laughs) That was a great, great film. Better than the film we're going to talk about in the pop culture corner, but let's keep the cork in that for now. Yeah, for now we got to do our main story. Obviously, we're no fans of the police. And Dan, lead us off. We're about to lay into these motherfuckers. So I guess we're going to examine for ourselves because it's something i haven't dug enough into and i'm kind of interested in so maybe by the end of this we'll have a better understanding of like abolishing the police or seriously changing our the structure of how the this shit works because clearly it's like infected and i guess always has been yeah i mean as krs1 eloquently put it the police are fucking descent. I'm paraphrasing, but the police are the descendants of slave catchers. They protect property, not people. And as we're going to go into, they are lethal and unrestrained. So I'm going to read a little bit because this story out of BuzzFeed News about the NYPD files that have been leaked to BuzzFeed that showed officers brutally beating people lying in one case one touched a high schooler inappropriately these files show that hundreds of officers who committed serious offenses top level offenses from lying to grand juries to physically attacking innocent people got to keep their jobs their pensions and their tremendous power over new yorkers lives yeah, one story that really stuck out to me was that guy Raymond Marrero. Like, of course, like, it's just, like these fucking dudes all live in like Staten Island because Staten Island is like you know cop infested hell world. But he had been fucking convicted of what beating, false arrest, 
assault in a case where a civilian disrespected him and he fabricated evidence. These are four separate counts and he's still on the force and makes 120K a year. And the reason that they're able to do this is because they receive this thing called dismissal probation as the BuzzFeed piece revealed. So here's a passage. Many of the officers lied, cheated, stole, or assaulted New York City residents. At least 50 employees lied on official reports, under oath, or during an internal affairs investigation. 38 were found guilty by a police tribunal of excessive force getting into a fight or firing their gun unnecessarily. 57 were guilty of DUI, 71 guilty of ticket fixing, one officer, Jarrett Dill, threatened to kill someone, another, Robertson Tunis, sexually harassed and inappropriately touched a fellow officer. Some were guilty of lesser offenses, like mouthing off to a supervisor. At least two dozen of these employees worked in schools. Andrew Bailey was found guilty of touching a female student on the thigh and kissing her on the cheek while she was sitting in his car in a school parking lot while he was supposed to be on duty. Lester Robinson kissed a woman, removed her shirt, and began to remove his pants. And Juan Garcia, while off-duty, illegally sold prescription medication to an undercover officer. In every instance, the commissioner, who has the final authority in disciplinary decisions, assigned them to this dismissal probation, which is a penalty with few practical long-term consequences. The officers continue to do their job at their usual salary. They may get less overtime and won't be promoted during that period, which usually lasts a year. When the year is over, so is the probation. Yeah, you basically do the sign of the cross and you're done. It's pretty fucked up. It's a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And then they they went into detail. This BuzzFeed article is great, and I think that BuzzFeed has been doing a great job of, like, turning itself into a more of a serious news organization, like, bringing, like really breaking stories. This kind of reminds me of the Guardian's database that it did in 2015 and 2016 of people who were murdered by police, which was groundbreaking at the time. And it did a lot of work showing how the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association has been lobbying to keep records of police brutality and other offenses secret the legal aid society which is the largest pub de- public defender organization in the country made a public request in 2016 for the outcomes of these of like these disciplinary trials we've been talking about and they were previously apparently public on a clipboard on the 13th floor of NYPD HQ which is the most fucking police thing i can think of but then once they started looking for it, the clipboard disappeared. And now Legal Aid is actually having to sue for these records, which were previous, are supposed to be public. But it's so heinous. Think of what difference it would make if this information had been available. Think of how that could change a case. It could prevent someone from being jailed under false pretenses. In one passage, it talks about, like, false accusations from an officer can be enough to send an innocent person to prison. Earlier this year, for example, a Queens detective was convicted of fabricating drug evidence that sent an innocent man to jail for 52 days. And then in Brooklyn, former homicide detective has tampered evidence that led district attorneys to review more than 40 cases. So this is like widespread shit. And the fact that these guys get to keep working, it's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. They also brought up one case that was really distinctive to me where the person didn't get to keep their job. The person got fired. This guy, Damon Porter, he actually joined other Latino officers in a class action lawsuit alleging basically the racialized weaponization of discipline standards in the NYPD. What I mean by that is the idea that they would overly discipline Latino officers as opposed to white officers. And 
apparently he was literally fired and then deprived of a pension, even though he was one year shy of retirement age, which I think they said it would have been like 10 grand a year. So depriving him of a serious amount of income. And the commissioner that fired him and did not give him the dismissal probation that like all these other cops who did way more heinous shit were doing, that guy got Ray Marrero's case nine months later. He was the guy who assaulted a person who disrespected him. He gave that guy dismissal probation and was like, that's fine. But it just goes to show how it's a self-preservation organization. It's built to perpetuate the same kind of world that fucking back in the day slave catchers wanted to What did they call it? Ticket? Ticket? What was the term? Like uh, falsifying tickets? Ticket fixing. Right. Why do they do it? Ferguson got a lot of coverage after the Michael Brown thing for something specific, which was that people get a shitload of municipal violations around there. And that was something that I remembered from living in New Orleans, where they literally have like debtor's prison. If you're accused of a crime in New Orleans, you can end up in prison just because you can't afford to, if you can't afford to pay like a lawyer to argue that you're innocent. So it can ruin your life. It's really like a kleptocratic thing. If you make something that everyone does illegal or you just arbitrarily write tickets, you're basically creating like a racket for yourself. So I think it just goes to show how these like cops are gangsters they do it to print money for themselves and the result is that they can ruin people's lives and it's weird how we have this kind of agreement that oh it's the end of the month they're gonna be really ticketing <laughs> yeah. hard and that's just that's just accepted dude you, you remember the palisades parkway in it's in new jersey and part of it is in new yeah york. it was like a 40 mile per hour it's 50 miles per hour and it has its own police force it's a it's like a not even a commuter highway it's even though people use it for commutes nowadays i think it was originally designed as like a lazy sunday drive kind of highway it's two lanes but it's 50 miles per hour and it has its own police force they pull you over constantly for anything and everyone speeds on there so they just have a constant source of revenue and everyone accepts it as like kind of a racket i feel like it's infamous amongst at least amongst people i roll with the idea of people who would fabricate evidence staying on you know in their jobs is so irritating especially when you consider obviously defense lawyers have to encourage a plea deal in that situation because juries especially if uh, the person's convicted juries will take the side of the cop over that of a defendant yeah and statewide here oh here's a here's a stat more than 98 percent of people charged with felonies that resulted convictions plead guilty rather than go to trial and so that happening with cops who are fabricating shit it happens all the time and i don't know this buzzfeed story definitely blew the lid off of a bunch of names and the writers of the piece kendall taggart and mike hayes have said that they're going to over the next few months be building a database on the website so that the information about all these cops who still have their jobs is available for public defenders in New York to use. And this information is crucial because it also highlights how much you kind of don't know and isn't revealed in this. Like, think of... Oh, and not just public defenders, but defense attorneys. But yeah, but think of how many violations and evil shit the cops have done off the record that has been... This is only the stuff they got caught doing right if you see this pattern oh this is a selection of leaked this is a selection of leaked documents from someone who works there it's not obviously this scratches the surface i'm sure it scratches the surface but it does but that's all you can really do even in like when you have like that good of a source it reminds me of how the guardian found through its reporting that police killings were underreported by by, in the u.s at least on a national level by 50 percent on average in between 2015 and 2016 in some states like oklahoma it was ridiculous like almost 100 percent were not reported i don't even know how they would i mean it's it's preposterous so 
I think it's so crucial to get this information because we have to consider that our cops are different from the world's cops in a very specific way. Our cops have fucking guns. And there's we another thing we need to talk about is like the case to you know at least disarm the police before if we can't abolish them right away. Well, this court's article included a great quote from criminologist Paul Takagi in 1974. He said, "Black people have been killed by the police at a tragically disproportionate rate beyond the bounds of anything that would justify it. Perhaps the only immediate solution at this time is to disarm the police." Now. It sounds like something out of another world, but in reality, it's not that crazy of a proposition. Now, there is a broad consensus that we need to demilitarize our police, especially after we all watched cable news after Ferguson, the shooting of Michael Brown led to this like insane level of militarized police combating protesters. What can we say about police not being armed in our country is that something i'm not even saying is it something that can happen anytime soon but is it something that you think a mass consensus could be achieved for as far as a mass consensus goes i think it would obviously at the moment at the time in the time being it would not be feasible but i think that hearts and minds are starting to change uh as there's a more serious critique of gun culture in the u.s that takes and isn't just focused on gun control which has its problems and more is uh, holistic like the case for disarming this country also needs to include disarming the police and i think that you can get in the door with things that prohibit the police from having certain kinds of guns and just kind of roll it back as we start to see more electoral political gains i think that becomes a possibility just basic rules that defund or at least reduce the funding to police or provide incentives to disarm especially in i feel like it it would be more of a slam dunk in places that are not violent or have a very low rate of crime i think that a lot of like suburban people suburban liberals are going to start to come around to the idea that it's freakish to have like people wielding death sticks in your neighborhood like if you if you pay so much to live in some bit you know some bullshit like westport connecticut or some other suburb and then your your police have tanks. Like, are you really safe? Do you feel safe? I feel like there's a way to change hearts and minds around. There's a way to have a diversity of tactics about this. Stats from the FBI suggest that of the 27 law enforcement officers murdered in 2013 in the line of duty, only six were able to fire their weapons at assailants. Another two were killed after their firearms were stolen and used against them. And this statistic pales in comparison to the number of people shot and killed by the police in that year which was 461 that sounds normal it's almost as if it's like a killing force yeah i think people are going to start to become more uncomfortable with these like roving death squads in our fucking country hopefully but that course article has a lot of good statistics about not just the u.s but how it compares to other countries i thought talking about iceland was really weird They have 33% gun ownership. Granted, they have a tiny population in Iceland, but the police don't carry guns there, and public trust in the police is over 80% in the polls. I mean, obviously, it's a homogenous white country, but it was just kind of a trip to imagine that situation when you think of, like, the terrible statistics of our own police force in the U.S. Yeah, it's the idea, I guess, of de-escalation that's widely accepted. Yeah, I think the idea of detente is a good way to... I mean, obviously, detente 
implies two equal forces kind of lowering their arms, whereas we're kind of just hoping that the state lowers its arms against just average people. But if you put it to a vote today, do you want the cops to not have guns anymore? Like nationwide, obviously people are going to rail against that. And then the NRA will finally like secede from multicultural America and just become like a white supremacist island in the middle of Fairfax, Virginia. Well, we seem to be getting closer to that given the amounts that the gun control debate has remained in our national conscience. Perhaps the psychological impact of disarming the police could be positive on the society at large and... That includes the police because, as one expert put it, U.S. police wearing their gun all the time has an important ideological effect. It makes police feel like they are never civilians, never normal people, that they're always cops and that they're never safe without a gun. I don't think that's the most productive frame of mind for civilians who are charged with keeping our cities safe and calm. Yeah, not to mention the impact it has on, you know, you hear this argument all the time like, oh, the U.S. has so many guns in it that we need the cops to have guns to keep up but then you're in this arms race and it becomes an issue of like would certain communities have so many guns if they weren't terrified of the police doing some shit like they did in philadelphia where they literally like bombed an apartment block like would they be stockpiling weapons if they didn't have to fight this overwhelming force of guns that is like not just the police but the u.s state which we could also extend to include, like, ICE and CBP. Also, I guess it is interesting how it's always about giving the police more and more shit and investing more and more in these things like expensive tasers and these always filming body cameras. Like, it's never about, like, taking stuff away. It's always about just giving them more toys. Yeah, that's true. Or, like, the green light shit that we talked about in Detroit and... I think what the thing with the police is that they have a psychological hold on us. They're able to, like, make you so fucking scared of yourselves in a way. Because I feel like, in a way, they are so formidable and intimidating. Like, when I see the, like, NYPD, f- f- you know, fucking with, like, homeless people or doing whatever they do, they always just look, like, strapped and, like, impervious to shit. It seems... I mean, we have to remember that cops are fucking class traitors and... I think when you talk about how they get a lot of toys, like you said, they get the fucking, every Christmas they're getting the, if even people who are against the police are like, we should give them body cameras and tasers and shit. Then I think you start to realize that they're class traders because the elite, rich people, money, capital, whatever, have to buy their fucking trust. Because if they didn't buy the trust of these police workers, who even though they get, I think a lot of cops do get paid, well paid, a lot of them don't. Like in New Orleans, cops made like 35 grand a year. And honestly, like I think if they, if they didn't buy them off in this way, then their position would be much more tenuous. Like the turning point in the Russian Revolution was when they couldn't control the army anymore, you know? Right. And you attach this Jacobin article, When Will They Shoot?, I thought this was kind of interesting. Their main contention with this was cops are really not in as much danger as they say they are. Because I've seen these statistics and it suggests that cops aren't even in the top 10 most dangerous jobs. Yeah, these statistics are from the Bureau of Labor Statistics' Census of Fatal Occupational Injuries. And 2012 data reports that for the number of fatal occupational injuries, we're getting legalese here, sorry folks, per 100,000 full-time equivalent workers, so the amount of cops who died per 100,000 of their, you know, relatable class, it was 15. 
So when you compare that to some other numbers, it makes their claims that they're obviously like certain cops who are forced to work in like really dangerous neighborhoods and stuff are up against a lot. And they are just fucking people caught in a crossfire, even though they obviously get a lot more privileges based on their position than someone else who's in that crossfire. But some of these other occupations that are more fucking lethal, like there are ones that you would expect, like logging workers and fishers. You know, we've all seen deadliest catch. We know that's lethal. But roofers, uh, refuse and recyclable material collectors. You're twice as likely to die on the job if you collect recyclable material. You're more likely to die if you are a driver slash sales worker. So I, I don't know what that, I think that could mean almost anything. It also includes truck drivers. If you're a power line installer, if you're a farmer, if you're a construction, even if you're a taxi driver, you're at more risk than a cop. And like we said before, the cops have a shield of church protection. And I'm not saying that cop, more cops need to die on the job, but this is good to have in mind. When you think of these like Republican wasteland images of just like the Blue Lives Matter shit. Yeah, this idea that like sh you know they they always bring up Chicago and they're like you're gonna be sh the Sebastian Gorka like spewing like black Africans are killing themselves by the bushel and stuff like that. It's such a fabrication and it's something that you're kind of I feel like brought up in this country to see that job as like. An, an ascendant bravery it's like something that's so like special and like you know the cop is the person in the community who keeps it you know keeps watch over everyone and it's the glue in the community but like in reality it's for most it's not something that brings any sort of comfort yeah i, I don't know that many people anymore who are thankful when the cops show up and i mean it, it, people say that this just comes from stories you hear in the media, but frequently that Jacobin magazine article also goes into how lethal it is to be around cops. We've seen some fucking ridiculous situations where they honestly make things worse, right? You heard about that case in, of the behavioral therapist in Florida who he had a client who I think was on the spectrum. He like got out of the facility. And so this behavioral therapist was trying to get him back in and someone called the cops because they heard the disturbance. And he was lying on his back with his hands and feet in the air. And the cop shot him in the leg. I did see that. It was awful. The video is uh, disturbing. There was also the case of Charlena Lyles, who is like a black woman who called the cops. She was the one who called the cops. She was pregnant and they shot up and killed her. No one knows why. Like, why did they show up and start shooting people? You're supposed to be de-escalating these situations. I also remember hearing about this case where an Afghanistan veteran was involved in an altercation with a guy who was wielding a gun, but the guy who, was who did time in Afghanistan where fucking everyone has a gun on the street there. You can't just shoot them down. He just read the guy's body language from his experience. It was like, that guy's not going to shoot me. And it turned out the gun wasn't loaded, but it didn't matter because when his reinforcement showed up, they killed the guy who was waving the gun. And then they disciplined the Afghanistan veteran for not killing the guy and for supposedly endangering other police. So this just goes to show the kind of culture you engender when you have this, like, you, you know, the idea that, like, police need to be lethal and fucking act with impunity all the time. Right, and this impunity is, I think, one of the main reasons why the public doesn't trust them and 
I mean, I, I live in New York City, and you can definitely feel the tension here at every fucking turn. Like, I, I, I've seen situations where people whip their phones out to film an altercation with the cop and a wasn't really in the vein of like a de-escalating thing it was really like a bullying tone yeah they they always respond to that to being filmed aren't these right-wing guys the guy the people who are like if you don't want to get searched then maybe you shouldn't do anything wrong like i don't know to my thing on read on police who don't want to be filmed on the street like maybe all right then just don't do anything wrong like also you're getting filmed anyway there's all it's in new york there's like 15 cameras on every intersection (laughs) Right, and we have this article from citylimits.org, which I I think we attached it. We don't have to go through too many of the specifics, but it gives a good case for abolishing the police in the context of the NYPD and, like, Bratton and Giuliani. The idea that broken windows policing is a failed concept that has been brought back even under the so-called progressive, like, de Blasio administration. He, like, rehired Bratton when he started to focus on broken windows policing, which is, like, this concept of policing when you police smaller crimes, like, and Lucy's like Eric Garner that you will stop bigger crimes but in reality it just overwhelmingly impacts people of color and specifically like black men I yeah, think. Yeah it definitely falls disproportionately. So the argument is that the police are such a aggressive force that there's not really a difference no matter who the leader is so there is like a way out of this right? All it takes is passing a few laws, right? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, diversity of tactics is a way to get people to agree through guess, direct action and through electoral politics and all the other things. We can eventually kind of slowly loosen their grip on us. Not that we're going to be too incrementalist about it, but still, like, there is a way to do it. And I think you should follow a lot of just, you know, the people who are trying to make this a reality. One good follow is definitely Sean McElwee, who focuses on the abolition of ICE. Like I mentioned before, abolishing the police is not just about your local community police. It's also these fucking vicious apparatuses that the Bush administration built in, specifically like ICE and CBP, DHS. Um, these were all created in the aftermath of 9-11. ICE is less, if you have like a younger sister or brother than, and you're around our age, then they're probably older than ICE is. It was created in like 2003. And it's just a fucking gang of toughs who are empowered to kick and beat people who are not considered people in this country, mainly people who are here on, without papers. And he wrote, Sean McElwee wrote a great article in The Nation called It's Time to Abolish ICE. It's a really good read. He mentions the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, which was passed under Clinton, which we call ARIRA affectionately, and how the Trumpian ICE today like dan how do you how do people how do like liberals describe trump's ice like does it i think a lot of people think trump like invented this like immigration crackdown right it's as if there weren't deportation forces under obama's reign and before exactly or even earlier than that i mean back in the first like overhaul of the immigration system that really focused on border spending was passed in 86 under Reagan. Basically, it's been like a, every 10-ish years, they just say, like, we need to spend a lot more money on border security. It's just a good, I think it's a thing that, like, Democrats can sell out over time to the right wing. So we're just at this point where 
we see that they've created this like living hell for people who have any kind of immigration status in this country even unless even if they're here on you know if they're documented their people feel they would they'd be scared of running into ice for sure and let's quickly play the clip of progressive fucking hero kamala harris saying her piece about ice should ice exist should ice exist it will certainly when we're talking about people who have committed serious and violent crimes you know i mean chris you know my background i'm a prosecutor yep. i believe that there needs to be serious severe and swift consequence when people commit serious and violent crimes one human being kills another human being a woman is raped a child is molested there needs to be serious consequence and certainly if they are undocumented they should be deported if they commit those serious and violent offenses so yes ice has a purpose ice has a role ice should exist it's such fucking bullshit that people who fucking act all progressive could somehow think that this this like someone said it was a white nationalist goon yeah, squad. It is. It's a fascist force. Yeah, they're the stormtroopers. Suggesting that it has a role is counter to saying what they're doing is wrong because this is what they do. I mean, I would extend that even to. Kamala Harris, who was a federal prosecutor back in the day, and she even says that in that quote. And I think it's ridiculous the way that people obviously she has some more of a progressive record relative to like other Democrats right now, at least recently. But there are people who genuinely think that this like identity essentialism, essentialism people have. They're like because she's got immigrants in her family and she's you know has this perspective, she's going to be good on immigration issues because of her identity but i'm like i don't know like you you can still believe the things she believes clearly and she's done a lot you don't have to act like you're surprised like it's kind of like in her fucking you know history and that coupled with like joe kennedy saying that he is totally against decriminalizing and legalizing (laughs) marijuana because it made it easier to pull people over despicable like we don't need cops as like our alternatives to trump in the next election like fuck these people yeah as far as defunding ice goes there are some political candidates who are running for offices that are interested in it there's alexandria ocasio or cortez in new york who is running for the 14th congressional district there's Kanyela ng candidate in hawaii for house of representatives and then siraj patel who's also in new york running for the 12th congressional district so that's our segment about abolishing, disarming, and fuck the police. Smash them. Let's move forward to the pop culture corner. It's the best picture of the year. We have to discuss it, Sam. It's The Shape of Water. Let's play a little bit of that film right now. If I told you about her, the princess without voice... What would I say? Eliza, come on. Eliza, hurry, hurry. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? 
This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. Talk about why you hated this film. Because I, while I didn't think it was perfect, I enjoyed watching it. I, you know, I, I wasn't actively disgusted at this tale of a mute woman's romp in the sexual bliss of a fish man. I mean, it, that is the plot of the fucking movie. It follows this the a, a blind woman. Oh, no, sorry, a mute woman. And her tryst with a, he's, so let's talk about the fish guy. So he's actually, I think Guillermo del Toro based him the gill man from the creature of the Black Lagoon. And if you Google a picture of him, it's pretty identical. I was frustrated because the gill, the fish man blinks, which fish don't do, but he has like claws and he's scaly, I, he's bluish gray, he has abs kind of, and she finds him very attractive. Dan, give me your notes on the fish man's appearance. He looks more like a frog man than a fish man to me in some ways. But Frogs do blink. I, I have to say, I did not find him sexy. It was an hour into the film and they still hadn't had sex. The film begins with a montage, this old-timey 1960s, 1970s period piece almost, very stylized backgrounds and mise-en-scene. And then you just see Sally Hawkins, who's the main character, just uh, masturbating in the bathtub, which later becomes the place where the fish man is protected by her. So I guess it implied the whole time that she sort of had this erotic attraction you know in the water was a place she was comfortable pleasuring herself i don't know why are we talking about this movie is just like it's so funny okay so so dan Dan, do you like other guillermo Guillermo del toro movies i thought pacific rim was okay i've seen scenes from pan's labyrinth i've enjoyed what i've seen i think he's extremely talented totally deserving of a best director award for his body of work which is generally how that award goes, I think. I, I, I'm i not upset to see a guy like him win. It seems like he's an incredibly passionate director. I read a long New Yorker profile on him that went deep into his creature shop, and it seems like this movie was... I don't know. It definitely checked a lot of boxes, despite being a movie that seemed like rather radical in concept, rather unconventional in concept. An article in Slate by Aisha Harris that I thought was really good that kind of summarized that idea that it was a really, really safe movie to win. That, you know, in a year that had Get Out, in a year that Moonlight had just won the previous year, Get Out would have been the first best picture in 50 years to show racism from a contemporary and primarily black perspective from Jordan Peele, a first-time director. It would have been a a real statement from the Academy, which until the Oscars So White thing a few years ago had really been like an older white male voting body. The Shape of Water was like the safer choice that was still progressive enough because it had Octavia Spencer as a strong black woman. It had 
a sort of like inter intersectional okay, romance. It was just we need kind to talk of... about the the faux progressivism of this fucking bullshit here. Yeah, like, sure. I think it is extremely weird when movies recast like things that people go through as fantastical experiences. The worst example is this, the autism allegory in The Man of Steel, the Superman movie. Like, when Superman is young, they act as if his superpowers are like he's autistic in a way. They say this very dark allegory that is very off-putting to me. Yeah, but and at this- the same time, though, I have to throw in that AIDS allegories work very well in many, many sci-fi and horror films. Uh, just think of um, The Fly by David Cronenberg. Okay, but... I think that when it's like this, I, I guess I think it's a, a, a little odd. I think there's an allegory for maybe like the like the queer experience in this movie okay. that unsettles me in a way. The idea that like you have to recast it as like loving a fish man to make it compelling to people is a little. I, it gave me like a weird taste. I, I don't think that that's a nice way to characterize it. Maybe I'm just reading that in there. Nor do I think that was Del Toro's intention with it. I really think he's a guy who's obsessed with creature features. He he talks about that endlessly in every interview. He does, for sure. And I think he was throwing back to, like you said, the creature from the Black Lagoon and also sort of, I guess, a classical Hollywood romance. So I think in that way, we can all agree it was a very conventional best picture choice, despite the premise... And the dialogue, dear God, the dialogue was horrendous. I enjoyed the Michael Shannon character, but I kept saying to myself, this could have just been like a composite of every other Michael Shannon role. He said, he at one point said, the Russians hate the Jews, but they can't get enough of their gadgets. And like... (laughs) I mean, do we have to go into the plot at all? So basically, Sally Hawkins plays this mute woman who lives with a gay older man played very well by Richard Jenkins. Uh, he did a terrific job in that role. I remembered him as the dad and stepbrothers and was so impressed at him in this movie. But you had Sally Hawkins working nights at this lab swab in the decks with Octavia Spencer, and they discover this fish creature locked in the lab and she starts teaching it how to eat eggs and listen to music. And God, Sam, in this one part, I feel like I've just said this nonstop since I saw this movie, but how annoying was that scene when the fish man runs away and he just is found mesmerized in the movie theater by, like, the beauty of film? Like, that was such a, like, jack-off moment for the Academy. They love that shit. Yeah, Honestly, the creature feature was secretly one of the best because it is a like I'm a big fan of Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone and some of his surreal work. I think he's a good magic realist at times, but I was just so thrown by the corniness of this movie. All of the discrimination in the movie was very like cartoonish and stereotypical. Like literally Michael Shannon covering his wife's mouth during sex. That was an awful sex scene. Like his finger is falling off. <laughs> There's a random scene out of nowhere with, like, this restaurant owner denying service to black people. There's also the nauseating metaphor of, like, Michael Shannon's cattle prod as, like, a dick joke and a metaphor for his, like, masculinity or his male oppression of the world. I just got a lot of, like, 
corniness out of this movie. Another quote that he had was, you know, the natives worship it as a god, referring to the fish man. And then he says, don't look like much of a god to me now, does it? Do you think this follows this weird Republican logic that, of course, well, last year, Moonlight, the gay black man movie won... You give that movie an award next year, who knows, they'll be they'll be having sex with fish. <laughs> well, I can't believe that the alt-right didn't seize on this movie. Like, the first fucking glimpse you get of, like, the fish man banging on the glass, I instantly thought of Alex Jones and the fish people. Oh, God. <laughs> it ruined the movie instantly. So, I thought an interesting way to look at the movie winning Best Picture as kind of the changing definition of what makes a Best Picture. So, a few things to note are it's the first film that could remotely be called a science fiction film to win Best Picture ever. Which I'm down with. It's the first movie centered on a female lead to win since 2004's Million Dollar Baby. And it's the first with a romance between a human and a non-human. I thought this quote in this article in The Atlantic, which we attached, really captured it well. It's not that The Shape of Water is truly a radical film. It's designed as a heartwarming crowd pleaser with a broad message of inclusivity that's anything but subtle. But what's notable is that The Shape of Water is now the kind of movie that exists as a consensus choice for Academy voters. The Overton window of acceptable Oscar bait has shifted. So I guess that's good. At least, you know, when you look at the last few years... 2011, The King's Speech. 2012, The Artist. 2013, Argo. If we still judged it like that, like Dunkirk or The Post would have won, which would have been fucking shitty. My consolation has been, or my way of getting through it is just like, the Get Out will be way, remembered for way longer than Shape of Water will be. Because it's a lot more memorable of a film, and it was actually original. Whereas, like that... Like you, like that passage you quoted said, it was not a fucking radical film. If anything, it kind of read to me as like a hacky caricature of like progressivism or like you said, inclusivity. And it left a sour taste in my mouth. But I think it is salient to compare it to Pan's Labyrinth. It came out 11 years ago and is an actually good movie, but it would never have got. It did not. I don't think it got a reception that this movie has gotten. The Academy really lost their shit over this one. That was The Shape of Water, unless you had anything else. 20 years of the big lebowski sam i don't i'm not crazy about the whole lebowski fest thing it's kind of just you know comic con capitalist kind of boring i don't care but what an incredible movie this was sam one that is worth celebrating one that ties together people from across all ideological spectrums yeah from those of us who celebrate shomer shabbos to uh those of us who won't take one foot over the line, although that is the same character. It's a great film. I watched it twice this weekend, as you can probably tell, because I'm quoting it like every annoying Lebowski fan. But every line is so funny. I can watch a movie like at any point. If I talk about it too much, I'll probably wind up watching it later tonight. But it's just so many classic lines. And I think the aesthetic is hilarious. Setting it in like 91 under like Bush senior years during like the, the, the Gulf War fiasco and all that. I thought it was just so, it's such an entertaining film. Why don't we just highlight Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman who has really pushed through the net neutrality laws that will make it harder for you to use the internet and much more costly so people like him can be enriched by the spoils 
Now, he tweeted, it's not just, like, my opinion, man. 20 years ago today, hashtag The Big Lebowski, the greatest film in the history of cinema, was released. Decades on, the dude still abides, and the movie really ties us all together. Ugh, like, that was, like, six fucking things in one tweet. Well... Sam, you've heard of the ratio, right? Can you describe what the ratio is to the fans, if they're not familiar? My limited Twitter understanding of the ratio is that if you've got, like, a shitload of comments on it, but you don't have any likes, you got ratioed. So, Ajit Pai, on his Big Lebowski tweet, had 189 retweets, 509 likes as of the time of this taping, and 1,000 plus comments. <laughs> Whatever these standards are, I think we can agree that's pretty bad ratio. And I'm happy to see it. Um, thanks to Twitter for coming out against a G-Pie, the guy who's going to make it a lot harder to illegally watch a movie that I think the Coen brothers would... Do you think they would be okay with just like releasing that to like the general public? Like It should be cultural patrimony by now. If it hasn't already been inducted into the Library of Congress, I'm sure it will be. But regardless, people like Ajit Pai should be forbidden from enjoying good entertainment. Whenever someone who I despise likes something a lot that I also really enjoy, then it makes me question so much what they see in it. Like, I can't see Ajit Pai watching The Big Lebowski and, like, enjoying watching the dude. Maybe he just hates the dude. Maybe he's like, he's like, I want to see this guy get his comeuppance for not paying for anything, which is the right thing to do. And in, in, in yo, oh my God, is he Brant? <laughs> yeah, he definitely is the, uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, Brant, who fucking is, way, you know, a sycophant at, at the other Lebowski. Let's team. drop in our favorite scene of Brant. Are you sure he won't mind? Well, he doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Oh, that must be exhausting. You're not blowing. Our guest has to be getting along, Mrs. Lebowski. Oh, you're bunny. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. Wonderful woman. We're all we're all very fond of her. Very free spirited. Brand can't watch though. Or he has to pay a hundred. <laughs> That's marvelous. <laughs> Sam, Netflix decided that it was really important to make a Rachel Dolezal fucking documentary. Ah. So I don't want to spend too much time on this. Rachel Dolezal was a woman who... Apparently she embedded herself with some civil rights groups and did some work with them, but she's essentially a white woman who claims to be transracial. Yeah, she was the actually the, at one time the chapter of her, or the head of the, her chapter of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. But she is a white woman from uh, Montana, I think, and her family outed her <laughs> with a picture because she had basically been wearing maybe bronzer or something. And then she got really into like African hair braiding techniques, I think. And then like she had just, you know, fake like black hair. So she was essentially like in respectful black. I don't know if it was respectful, but like she wanted to be black. She like wanted to take on the identity uh, and people called it out and were like, you can't be transracial. And I think, Maybe some dipshit like Republicans ran with it and were like, this is the future liberals want. <laughs> I think I've seen her in a bunch of memes. And there's obviously so many more interesting and appropriate women of color 
to feature real women of color. Yeah, I mean, I... she's a woman of bronzer. I mean, it's also called the <laughs> Rachel <bronzer>. Divide. <laughs> is there? And then the the worst thing is that her son is quoted so much in the clip, uh, which we have to play the audio from. I really do not want to focus on this for the rest of my life. Do you think I do? Well, why don't you just let it go away? When something gets destroyed, you have to rebuild it. You can't just pretend that it didn't happen and everything gets fixed. Why does the documentary have to happen then, Mom? Why can't you just end the book? It's called rebuilding. This is going to affect more than just your life. Some people read and yeah, what happened affected more than just my life. If somebody has hope, don't take that away from them because maybe I'm that's not. all they have. But <laughs> oh my god, that's a rough. He constantly wants to like avoid being bullied. His mom wants to like rebuild her brand, which is clearly like why she agreed to do this documentary. The filmmaker Laura Brownson said that like in making the film she came to a deeper understanding of the raw nerve that Rachel hits in our society but also learned that her motivations to identify as she does are far more complicated than most realize regardless of how people feel about Rachel I hope the film will challenge audiences to think more deeply about race and identity in America it's just like uh... <laughs> maybe we'll watch it maybe we won't <laughs> I don't know let us know on Twitter if you want to hear us fucking talk about it do a deep dive into uh like rachel bill's all culture um could be interesting i I don't know she's she's a heinous woman and i it's it's an odd case but i think we should move on to uh our weekly story it'll be my story this week and it'll be a work story a couple weeks ago we pre-taped the final in three Michael Ian Black advice shows. I think it's going to be called Ask Michael Ian Black. And it's just a pre-taped call-in where Michael was tweeting out a number to call and he would just listen to anyone who called in about advice. And I was the phone screener. So the lines are pretty full the whole time. He's got like 2 million followers. So when he tweets something, people who are browsing their Twitter will call. So Sam, I know you haven't done the radio broadcasting side of this from that technical perspective, but I know you had plenty of experience fielding phone calls at work. So you can feel my pain in the fact that sometimes you're answering calls from people that are pretty weird. Yeah, I, uh, once during a playoff game, the pizza place I worked at ran out of chicken wings, and I got some. I feared for my safety at one point. People were so fucking. They would call, be like, "I need three dozen wings." I'd be like, mm, "We're out of wings." They'd be like, oh, "Like you should be ashamed of yourself." When you are watching the game and you can't get your wings, it's time for blood. Yeah, time to take it out on like the seventeen-year-old who works there. So I took one call in particular that I'd like to highlight. It was someone who said when he spoke to me, probably gave a fake name, I'm sure many people do, and you know, somewhere in the southern United States, and he said that he wanted to talk about gun control with Michael. Seemingly, from what I could tell, from the perspective of someone who cared about gun control. Well, Michael took the call, and... He's a nice guy. He is pretty generous with his advice, but also very funny with it. And it's a pretty light, loose program. 
all of a sudden, this caller starts basically reading off a sheet, talking points, and mentioning that he is a part of Identity A Rope, <laughs> which is a hate group that we've talked about on this show. Sam, this is a Nazi. I screamed, a Nazi. You were like, cotton, like, Nazis. <laughs> Michael handled it really, really well. He said, through the guy talking, you know, reading off a sheet, all his points, he was like, stop, stop, stop. And then he said something to the effect of, it was great. He was like, you're clearly reading off a sheet, and if I could, I would talk to you for a full hour to see, like, how your life got, you know, just, just, he really handled it in a way that, I think would be kind of the most appropriate way you could handle someone like that. Called him a white supremacist. And the funniest thing was the guy was like, boo, like (laughs) as if like, Oh, you can't hurt me with your lib language. (laughs) You you can't call me racist. (laughs) It doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. A white supremacist called into the radio show. I was screening calls for, uh, what did I learn from that experience? Fucking nothing, because he fooled me. I apologize to Michael, too. He was really nice about it. He said he didn't care. He thought it was good radio. I mean, anytime you come in contact with those guys, it's, it's a bizarre experience. It does exist outside of the internet, though. It's so creepy whenever that happens. Yeah, I guess, like, coming face-to-face with someone like that in your context where they're calling into a radio show, like, I... I you know, obviously, like, the shallow implication is that, like, no one else is, like, necessarily wants to listen to this guy. <laughs> exactly. People say about, I've heard this interestingly about sports media and that the people who call in, they want to be characters on the show themselves. It's not that they want to, like, you know, make the host look better often. These are people who want to be they want to be a part of the show, you know? It's not... They want to take the audience experience to the next level. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and and I mean, I can think of some shows I like where there are regulars who call in, but, I mean, at the end of oh, the day... Oh, that's nothing guess... against call-in shows. They're a great uh, tool, but you open yourself up to some real scum. <laughs> Luckily, uh, I didn't get very many white supremacists. Well, maybe there were white supremacists who called me at the pizza place I worked at, but they didn't mention it on the phone. They were just talking about pizza and stuff. They're like, I'll have an all-white pizza with ricotta cheese. <laughs> I'll have a French fries, plain, like just bread, <laughs> white bread. <laughs> yeah, I can think of a few towns in rich New Jersey where there's one or two white supremacists. Maybe not identity Europa types, but certainly... Some shitty Republicans. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, when they when these people call in and you say they're playing like a character, it's kind of interesting how like um I mean, clearly we're sort of doing it, but like your politics in a weird way or like your identity becomes like a brand in this like like I don't know, fucking capitalist hellscape we live in. And I guess this guy calling in maybe thought that like somehow like there'd be like other white supremacists who would listen and like maybe find him or like maybe he would just like find some sort of acceptance in calling up someone who like he disagrees with or it'd be a story for someone to tell. It's it's weird to ima- imagine like the mechanics of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to go into the psychology of someone who would 
take that sort of time to talk about whatever extermination he wants to do next. That's the plunge for this week. This is our 20th episode. That's a damn milestone there, Sam. That's right, folks. Everyone who stuck with us from the beginning, uh, thank you. And also, hello to all new fans. Please uh, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Tweet at us at plunge underscore podcast. And let us know if there's any other apps that you use that you need me to upload the show to, which I'm willing to do. Write a review and rate us on iTunes so the show gets out there a little bit. That really, really helps. And if you made it this far into the show, you definitely have enough time. Yeah, and tell your friends and family to listen to our ravings. And you can hear me on SiriusXM on the Craig Ferguson Show, weeknights, 6 p.m., Channel 103, and then also on Channel 103 Saturdays. I do a wrap-up show at 11 a.m. called The Talking Shed, where we recap the Craig Ferguson Show and do extremely delirious conversation. And you can follow me on Twitter at Spaventacular. That's S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. And Sam, give us the final word. You can follow me at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K. And uh, sorry we were late. You know, don't come at us with push forks, please. That'll be all, folks. Goodbye. Au revoir.